January 26th, 1945, Ziegenhain, Germany. Snow falls on the freezing ground. The war is almost over. Throughout Europe, the Allies have taken back city after city from the Germans. For the first time, there is a sense of hope and possibility in the air. But in the brutal Stalag 9A POW, or prisoner of war camp, 1,275 American soldiers have no idea that help is on the way. And the race is on. For already withered by malnutrition, exhaustion, and brutal cold, they don't know how long they'll last. And death may be coming sooner than the Americans. As the soldiers shiver outside of their prisoner barracks, a Nazi officer makes an announcement over the loudspeaker. The next morning, all Jewish American soldiers will be ordered to step forward and fall out. The soldiers look to each other nervously. The hundreds of Jews among them aware this is the moment where it could all end. They know enough to know that where Jews are sent, there is no returning. Then, something extraordinary happens. Their commander, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds looks at his men and says ever simply but clearly, we're not going to do that. The soldiers turn to their Master Sergeant in disbelief. What is this 24-year-old Christian soldier thinking? Deliberately defy a Nazi order? What the hell is he doing? I'm David Weil, creator and executive producer of the series Hunters on Prime Video. I was inspired to create the series because of my grandmother, Sarah Weil, a Holocaust survivor. When I was young, my Safta started telling me the stories of her experiences during the war. To me, her heroism felt like the stuff of comic books and superheroes. During one of the darkest, most horrific periods in human history, there were ordinary people who made the choice to resist, standing up and fighting for the common humanity of their fellow people, doing what many of us would consider impossible. Hunters is inspired by the heroism of survivors like my grandmother and of heroes and resistors like these. The stories you're about to hear are true, and the words and many of the voices you'll hear belong to the heroes, survivors, their families, and friends. This is Chutzpah. Hunters presents True Stories of Resistance. And this is The Sergeant. What if there was a hero in your own family and you didn't even know it? What if that hero was your own father, but you didn't find out until after his death? That's what happened to Chris Edmonds following the passing of his father, Roddy, a decorated master sergeant in the 106th Infantry Division of the U.S. Army during World War II. Chris grew up knowing that his father had served with honor and had been a German POW. But whenever he asked questions about what his father experienced, Roddy would respond that there are some things just too difficult to share. Here's Chris speaking about his father. He never shared any of the actions he took in the POW camp or even life, what he experienced in the POW camp. I remember as an older teenager and, and in college, I would press him on it and ask him, particularly if, if I was looking at the diary, he would say, son, there's just a lot of things I don't, I don't want to share and I don't like to talk about. So he didn't. It didn't matter how, how much I pressed him on it. Roddy Edmonds died in August of 1985, 
then it seemed that he had taken his stories to his grave. It would take 20 plus years for his son to discover his father's true story. Basically, my story begins with Dad's dog diary, just a weathered, fragile book. You know, it belonged to him as a young man from Tennessee fighting for his country on a continent near the edge of collapse. My father passed away years earlier, but since then, the diary just remained tucked away with other mementos from his service during World War II. Chris had tried to read through this diary in the past, but the entries were sparse and minimal, with few words and details. Thinking this was the last vestige of his father's story, Chris resigned to the fact that some pieces of his father would remain a mystery. After all, if the stories were too traumatizing to speak about, would Chris even want to know them? But in 2010, when his daughter Lauren had a college assignment about her family's history and chose to focus on her grandfather, Chris realized that the time had come to learn who Roddy Edmonds really was. So, he started where most of us would. Google. So one evening, just past midnight, I searched Dad's name and rank on my computer. And remarkably, his name appeared in a New York Times article entitled Richard Nixon's Search for a New York Home. And the article recounted how an attorney named Lester Tanner sold his historic townhouse to President Nixon in the 1980s. And in the article, Mr. Tanner mentions and recalls the bravery of his master sergeant, Roddy Edmonds, saving his life. Well, I'm stunned. That's my father. And I have no idea who is Lester Tanner. I mean, and what does he mean by bravery? So the questions, I just, my mind just starts having lots of questions. And, and then I ask, is, is Mr. Tanner still alive? And if so, where is he? This began a personal mission for Chris. After months of research, Chris tracked Lester Tanner to New York, where he was by this time an accomplished attorney in his late 80s. And when they sat down to speak, the stories that Lester started to tell were incredible. Roddy Edmonds was born in 1919 in Tennessee. In the tumultuous period of American history following World War I, the South was still torn apart by racial violence and intolerance. As the U.S. worked to rebuild itself economically, it was still riven by inequality and bigotry. Despite all of this, Roddy grew up in a Christian home that preached tolerance and love, following the golden rule above all else. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. While he didn't grow up with much in the way of worldly possessions, his spiritual life was rich. But at three years old, his mother died unexpectedly of a thyroid condition, leaving Roddy's father to care for four boys, Roddy being the youngest. As a result, he grew up independent, focusing on his studies and on helping others around him, especially during the Great Depression. He volunteered for the local safety patrol and in soup kitchens, even as his own family often went hungry. Wherever he could, Roddy sought to be of service to those both like and unlike him. One group of people he didn't see a whole lot were Jews. Well, Lester, he likes to share that Roddy probably never met a Jew before he joined the army. So, Although I'm pretty sure he did because he, there were some Jewish guys in his uh, graduating class that I know he knew, he knew them because they were in his classroom. They were his age. and But again, you know, dad probably didn't run around with, with too many Jewish guys. And there were not a lot of Jewish people in Knoxville. There's still not a lot of Jewish people in Knoxville, but at that time there were even less. In March 1941, 
eager to serve his country, Roddy enlists in the U.S. Army, continuing a long Edmonds tradition of military service. Nine months before Pearl Harbor, he is sent as a private to Fort Jackson for infantry training. He is 21 years old, rail thin, and barely able to complete a push-up. Roddy learns fast. In a series of intensely realistic war game simulations, Roddy proves himself a strategic and tactical thinker, able to make life-saving decisions for dozens of men in his division. By the end of 1941, he is promoted to private first class. And by January 1943, he's promoted to master sergeant and communications chief of his regiment. He reached this position at only 22, a nearly unprecedented feat. By this point, the U.S. is fully engaged in World War II across both the European and Pacific theaters and making headway against the Germans. Meanwhile, on a weekend pass, Roddy returns to Knoxville to marry his girlfriend, and he begins looking forward to returning from the army to start a family. But the war only continues to escalate, putting Roddy's plans in peril. Still stationed in Fort Jackson as Master Sergeant, Roddy is put in charge of the 106th Infantry Division, known as the Golden Lions. In this role, he's responsible for training and educating the young recruits. Among them is a young Jewish man named Lester Tannenbaum. Lester was born in 1923 in the South Bronx to a tailor and a homemaker. He was raised in a thriving Jewish community where they attended synagogue every Saturday and kept kosher at home. He grew up speaking Yiddish, but learned English from reading the New York Times. Following in his older brother's footsteps, Lester enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1941 with dreams of becoming a U.S. Air Force pilot. But following the invasion of Pearl Harbor, he was sent to the infantry to train at Fort Jackson under Roddy Edmonds. Within a few months, the two became close friends. When I was in the army, I was young. I was 19 years old. To me, it had a certain adventurous, which is exhibited where I wanted to serve. And uh, the soldiers that I met, my comrades, there was no, I found no discrimination. There certainly was an extra motivation for me personally, because I was Jewish. And if, if the war had lost, my life would never have been the same. Despite using the less Jewish sounding name, Lester Tanner, Lester was one of many Jewish infantrymen who served under Roddy. And they became not only his soldiers, but his brothers in arms. A connection that is about to become a lot more meaningful. While Roddy and the 106th continue their training in Tennessee, the reality of their enemy's plan is about to become clear. In July 1944, Soviet soldiers move into Poland and capture what they believe to be a labor camp called Majdanek. But soon they learn the horrible, unbelievable truth. Majdanek was a concentration camp, or in their words, a factory of death. In August 1944, the New York Times runs a front-page story depicting the brutality and mass killings of 1.5 million innocent people in Majdanek. 
For the first time, the world learns the breadth of the Nazi atrocities and the full, horrifying scope of their intentions. Meanwhile, even as the end appears to be in sight, the U.S. Army struggles to gain ground against the Germans. Hit among the hardest was the 106th Infantry, losing close to 80% of their men. Back at Fort Jackson, Roddy rebuilds his unit, preparing for the battle to come. When Roddy and the 106th are finally sent to the front lines in October 1944, they have a full understanding of the pure evil they're up against. They are the last U.S. infantry mobilized in the war. And they're also the youngest. The 106th arrives in France in early December, one of the coldest, wettest winters on record in Western Europe, and just in time for the Battle of the Bulge. Here's military historian and author Flint Whitlock. The Battle of the Bulge, as it's known in the West, or Operation Wacht am Rhein, as the Germans called it, uh, was Hitler's basically last-ditch effort in the West to stop the American and British and Canadian allies, and the French too, for that matter, from driving deeply into Germany. They, uh, the idea was to throw as many divisions, as many tanks, as many artillery pieces as many aircraft as the Germans had on the Western Front to stop the Allied drive towards the east, towards Berlin. Of course, Roddy and the 106th have no way of knowing this yet, but the situation is starting to look increasingly dire. On the ground, in the dense, mountainous forests of the Ardennes, Roddy is the communications chief. While he and his soldiers battle the frigid cold and relentless fog, ominous sounds of tanks and armored vehicles increase by the day. Roddy sends in numerous radio reports about suspected troop movements that appear to grow ever closer. The commanding officers feel that Roddy and his unit are overreacting. They even go so far as to suggest the Germans are playing recorded sounds to intimidate the soldiers. Roddy is infuriated by their response, but he reasons to himself that I don't know, maybe they're right. After all, the commanders reiterate that the enemy would never stage this large of an offensive in the middle of a brutal winter. Little did they know just how wrong they are. December 16th, 1944, 5.30 a.m. The forest explodes with a barrage of 88 millimeter German artillery. Bodies fly through the air as shells rain down with brutal accuracy. To Roddy and everyone on the ground, it feels like the world is on fire. He tries frantically to radio for help, but it's too late. The Nazis have jammed all radio frequencies and severed all telephone wires in the region. Roddy and the soldiers stand their ground, fighting with everything they have, believing, praying that reinforcements are on the way. But after two days, the 106th is forced to surrender along with several other regiments who had been fighting in the region. German troops surround them from every side. Roddy looks around in horror. The bodies of fellow soldiers lay on the ground, bleeding into the white snow. In an act of desperate resistance, Roddy smashes his rifle against a pine tree, destroying it so that a German can never use his weapon to kill an American. The Germans strip the soldiers of their coats 
and shoes and any jewelry on their bodies. In this moment, there's a terrifyingly real possibility that they could all be killed on the spot. Here again is Flint Whitlock. The Germans were very successful initially in um, capturing American soldiers primarily. I don't have the exact figures, but it was in the tens of thousands. And so if you can uh, crash through the lines and encircle the soldiers that you're fighting against, uh, you, you stand a good chance of getting them to surrender and to uh, take them prisoner. So um, the troops that tried uh, holding off the Germans did so to the best of their ability, but they quickly ran out of ammunition. They were quickly encircled. It was either a surrender or die situation. And so the soldiers, many of them decided that they probably stood a better chance if they surrendered than if they continued to fight to the last cartridge. And so there were, there were tens of thousands of soldiers that were captured. After the Nazis take the units prisoner, they order the men to lie down and sleep in the freezing snow, machine guns trained on them all night long. At dawn the next morning, the Germans order Roddy and his men up and tell them to march. With no sense of their destination, the exhausted and wounded men march onwards, freezing, dehydrated, starving, their feet frostbitten and inflamed. Still, they continue because they have no choice. Roddy is as frightened as his men, but he won't let it show. He must continue to lead his soldiers, no matter the circumstance. Finally, after 31 miles of relentless marching, they reach Gerolstein, a railway hub, where the men of the 106th and 28th divisions are placed together in holding. Finally, they got to some railheads, some towns where there were railroad lines in a western portion of Germany and put into cattle cars, basically boxcars, taken by train on a ride with the boxcars just jammed to the rafters with soldiers who were scared, cold, hungry, thirsty, uh, wondering what was going to happen to them. This was a, a multi-day trip to remove them from the battlefield and take them to a rear area where they could be basically uh, taken to prisoner of war camps, facilities that were specifically set up to accommodate prisoners of war. The cattle car trip is equally treacherous. In a cruel irony, the POWs on the train find themselves in danger from the percussive aerial bombing overhead from the Allies, who had no idea that their own were captive on these trains right below them. I'm sure the concussion of the bombs was, was terrifying, but they could actually hear every bomb that was dropped from those planes because they would whistle as they fell through the sky. You could hear, hear all those bombs, and every one of them sounded like they were coming directly at them, you know. And it was terrifying because they were just locked in, left for dead. On Christmas Day, Edmonds and the other soldiers finally arrive in Stalag 9B, a squalid POW camp that housed more than 25,000 soldiers at the time. Many of the soldiers who were captured in the Battle of the Bulge that I wrote about in Given Up for Dead were taken to uh, what was called Stalag 9B, and it was in a town or just on the outskirts of a town called Bad Orb, B-A-D-O-R-B, 
And it was a spa town in peacetime uh, where you could go and take the, the waters and have mineral baths and things of that sort. It was a kind of a health resort. But during the war, it became a, a place where Allied prisoners were taken. Earlier in the war, Bad Orb had been known for its more humane conditions among POW camps. But in 1945, this had changed radically. Overcrowded barracks, scarce access to water, and dangerously unsanitary conditions bred rampant disease. For many, it was a death sentence. With a dire shortage of food and medical attention, the soldiers are imprisoned in conditions that keeps them teetering on the edge of life. Jewish POWs are segregated from the non-Jewish POWs. In early warning, that the Nazis are not making exceptions for Americans. It was near the end of the war, late January 1945. The Nazis had strict anti-Jew policies, even in the POW camps. They would segregate Jewish POWs from non-Jews and send them to their certain death in murderous concentration camps like Berga. Berga, a slave labor camp created by the Germans to fuel their economic needs at the expense of human life. American Jewish POWs and non-Jewish soldiers deemed problematic were sent here. The majority never to be seen again. Flint Whitlock tells us more. I guess you could say that the POWs who were sent to Berga were pretty much forgotten. Uh, the German war machine was chronically short of fuel, gasoline, and oil, and other petroleum products. And so they were making synthetic fuel out of oil shale. And by putting a factory underground, it made it impervious from Allied bombing. The soldiers who were forced to do this work would go in and start drilling and blasting, and they'd you know, breathe in all of the rock dust and everything that was being generated. So it was a situation rife with uh, trauma. Besides not getting enough to eat or water to drink, they were also being subjected to these brutal conditions working in the mine, working in the tunnels. And um, some, some of the men died because of the conditions or because they came down with disease. Burgo was just one example of places that Jews might have been sent. For Roddy and his men, they could have ended up there. For 30 days, the divisions are all stationed at Bad Orb. Then, abruptly, the non-commissioned officers are told that they are being transferred to the slightly more hospitable Stalig 9A, with 1,275 other soldiers from the 106th and 28th. It's here, at Stalig 9A, where Roddy's leadership is truly put to the test. And now we return to where we began. It's January 26th, 1945. Snow falls on the freezing ground. As the soldiers shiver outside their prisoner barracks, a Nazi officer makes an announcement. The next morning, all Jewish soldiers will be ordered to step forward and fall out. The soldiers look to each other nervously, the hundreds of Jews among them knowing this is the moment where it could all end. The soldiers know enough at this point to know that where Jews are sent, there is no returning. Then, Roddy Edmonds turns to his men, and what he says is remarkable. We're not going to do that. The soldiers all look to their master sergeant in disbelief, deliberately defy a Nazi order, 
Does Roddy have a death wish? Roddy addresses his men with conviction in his eyes. Tomorrow morning, all of us are stepping forward. The soldiers, Jews and non-Jews alike, look to their leader, wanting to believe he has a plan. It's hard to say what the next morning will hold. Well, it was bitterly cold that morning, January 27, 1945. And as the Nazi commander approached, he was stunned. He couldn't believe his eyes. All the Americans, nearly 1,300 soldiers, were lined up in sharp formation. The German, the Major Siegmund, was shocked beyond belief. He's in charge of all German POW camps. He's the eyes and ears of Hitler. He issued the orders, and he's there to take the Jews away. No one has ever disobeyed his orders. Well, the Major rushed over to my father and gets up in his face and he screamed, they can't all be Jews, to which my father declared, we are all Jews here. With these five words, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds disobeys the Nazi order. And for these 1,300 men, he changes the entire course of history. The German officers are apoplectic, rifles raised, no one has ever dared question their authority with this kind of audacity. Roddy's soldiers are equally taken aback. I mean, does he have a death wish? Is he going to get them all killed? Chris Edmonds describes the entire scene as it took place. And then my father continues. He, he leans in to the, to the major and says, under the Articles of the Geneva Convention, prisoners of war are only required to give name, rank, and serial number. Don't quote regulations to me, screamed Siegmund. Were my orders not clear? I want the Jews, just the Jews. Well, standing on Dad's left was Sergeant Lester Tannenbaum, a.k.a. Lester Tanner. He's a 19-year-old Jewish kid from the Bronx whom Dad had trained since basic. He's one of Dad's best soldiers. On Dad's right was Sergeant Paul Stern, a combat medic from the 28th Division. He's another Jewish kid and a fine soldier from the boroughs of New York. While ensuring eye contact again, my father leaned in to the major, and he said very sternly in his deep sergeant baritone voice, Major, we'll give you name, rank, and serial number. That's all. Well, Dad's defiant bravery, Lester said, swept through the ranks. He said everyone stood a little taller, but the Nazi turned blood red. He was enraged. He lunged forward and he pressed his pistol hard into my father's forehead. Sergeant, one last chance. You will order the Jews to step forward or I will shoot you right now. Well, by this point, Dad and his men had seen untold horrors. Brutal battle where 89,000 men were killed, captured, or wounded in the bloodiest battle of World War II. A death march, several days of marching in deep, icy snow. No food, no water, no sleep, no rest, seemingly no hope. They've experienced 40 days of, of willful, active starvation by the Germans. Uh, the men uh, were losing, on average, a pound a day. And many of these men lost anywhere from 80 to 100 pounds during their incarceration. Uh, they were miserable. They were haunted by lice, dysentery, and trench foot. They were forever hungry, forever cold. Dad had been shot, interrogated, beaten, kicked, smashed with rifle butts, bitten by dogs, stripped of his dignity. Maybe that's why Dad wrote in his diary, no one can realize the horrors an infantry soldier goes through. He gets scared, and I mean scared. Yet their dad and his men, all of his men, stood as one. They stood strong, brave, resolute. 
Lester told me, said, Chris, your father, he never wavered. Well, suddenly, with the gun still to his head, Dad leaned closer to the Major, and he spoke calmly and courageously. He said, Major, you could shoot me, but you'll have to kill all of us because we know who you are and you'll be tried for war crimes when we win this war. And you will pay. I can almost imagine my father's finger being stuck into that major's chest. The Nazi turned white, Lester said. He said he blanched. His arm began to tremble. And his finger, though, was still on the trigger. And the gun was still pressed to your father's forehead. Time froze. No movement, no sounds. Just the smoke-like puffs of frozen breath drifting skyward along with prayers. It seemed like an eternity. Then suddenly, without warning, the Major pulled the gun down to his side. He turned and fled the scene. The German officer backs down and relents, knowing what the soldiers didn't yet know, that the Allies would soon be coming and the war was nearing its end. And in that moment, Roddy Edmonds saves the lives of hundreds of Jewish soldiers. But they're not entirely out of the woods just yet. For the next three months, the soldiers remain imprisoned at Stalag 9A. As the Allied forces come closer to their camp, the Germans order all POWs to leave the camp by foot or on waiting trucks. While the purported destination is a camp deeper into Germany, the men are all too aware that in their weakened states, any long journey will mean certain death. In the camp, there was there were different quadrants. There was the American camp, American soldiers, the Russians, the Serbs, the French, and the British. And so on the following morning, they were all supposed to line up and march out. And Dad, like he had said before, he turned to his men and he said, we're not doing that. We can't leave this camp, can't afford to leave this camp. Many of us are too weak, and we don't know what we will face once we leave the camp. And so we're going to refuse to go out. Once again, at just 24 years old, Roddy takes charge and devises a dangerous plan to keep his men alive. And he said, lots of you men are already sick. He said, I want the rest of you guys to try to get sick. I want you to eat grass, dirt, vermin, whatever it takes for you to get sick. He said, and so the plan will be those of us who aren't sick will fall out the next morning. But all the sick men are to remain. And then we're going to, once we fall out, we're going to run back in and basically tell the Germans we're going to have to take care of our sick guys that they can't go. And we're going to cause confusion all day long, uh, as long as it takes, basically is what he said. And so that's what they did the next morning. A few of the men fell out, but then they ran back. Once once they tried to march them out, they gave the orders to march out. They ran back into the barracks and they did that all day long. At the end of the day, as the sun was setting, the the commandant of the camp, he was a colonel, he came over to to my dad, he threw up his hands, and he said, okay, Sergeant, you win. said, you can have the camp, we're leaving. And the Germans marched out. I mean, just imagine this. Twice now, Radia saved hundreds of American GIs under his command. Twice now, he has defied any common wisdom about the Nazi army, putting their principles to the test and proving that his were even stronger. March 30th, 1945. Still in camp, artillery booms overhead. 
Roddy and his men watch tensely as tanks roll over the horizon. But as the vehicles get closer, they see an unbelievable sight, an American Jeep. General Patton's army marches into Stalag 9A and liberates the camp. They find the soldiers sick, emaciated, weak, but alive. The prisoners leap for joy and run straight towards their liberators, kissing their tanks, crying tears of relief and happiness. With the last of their energy, they leap onto the vehicles. The Jewish soldiers realize something altogether miraculous. Today, this day of liberation happens to be the Jewish holiday Passover, where the Jewish people were led out of slavery in Egypt. Roddy returns back to Tennessee and settles down. But his patriotism burns bright. He eventually serves another tour in the Korean War. He remarries and has sons, along with a daughter from his first marriage, all of whom go on to have children and grandchildren of their own. Sadly, in 1985, Roddy dies at only 65 years old from congestive heart failure. But to the end of his life, he lived every day like it was his last. Driven by his faith and his love for his family and his community, he coached Chris's baseball team, he led his Cub Scout troop, and he was active in his church. Roddy's legacy lives on in everyone he saved and everyone he touched. Even if it was too difficult for him to speak about the trauma he experienced all those years ago. I was sitting with Lester Tanner in his apartment about three years ago, and um, he looked at me and he said, Chris, do you, uh, do you realize how many people are alive and well today because of your father's actions? And I said, no, I really haven't given that thought. And, and I said, well, you know, we know at least 200 Jewish GIs were saved. And so you start thinking about their children, their grandchildren. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about just the Jewish men. He said, I've thought about it, and there's more than 13,000 people alive and well today because of your father's actions. After learning of his father's heroism in 2013, Chris began his mission to have Roddy Edmonds recognized with the Congressional Medal of Honor, calling congressmen and women and making a case for his father's bravery. The Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds Congressional Gold Medal Act is currently under consideration in the U.S. Senate. Thanks to Chris's work in helping Roddy Edmonds' story be heard. In 2016, the Israeli Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, honored Roddy as righteous among the nations, the highest honor given by Israel to non-Jews who risked their lives to protect Jews during the Holocaust. He is the only American serviceman to date to receive this honor. On January 27th, President Obama formally recognized Roddy Edmonds, posthumously presenting him with the Righteous Among the Nations Award. What an extraordinary honor to be with you as we honor four righteous individuals whose courage is measured in the lives they saved. One child, one refugee, one comrade at a time and who, in so doing, helped save our world. Also there to speak was Lester Tanner. Edmonds did not waver. Even when the German took out his pistol 
and threatened to shoot him. Roddy could no more have turned 200 of his men over to Nazi persecution than he could stop breathing. While he was not a Jew, Roddy stood up for those around him who were persecuted and threatened with extermination. And in doing so, put his own life on the line. Your life matters and it matters most when you serve others better than yourself. You know, the Talmud teaches the same. He who saves one life saves the entire world. So my motto every morning, and I don't live up to it every day, but my motto is others first, me last. Our world would be so much better and so much brighter if all of us lived that way. So my challenge to you and to myself is to go save our world. One kind word, one good deed, one selfless action, one precious life at a time. Be the hero. We honor the heroes of the past, heroes like Roddy Edmonds, by invoking their memory in the present. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I am so excited for you to check out the series Hunters, streaming on Prime Video. If you're interested in learning more about Roddy Edmonds, please visit roddyedmonds.com, R-O-D-D-I-E-E-D-M-O-N-D-S.com. You can also read his life story in No Surrender, a father, a son, and an extraordinary act of heroism that continues to live on today. Thank you to C-SPAN for providing the Righteous Among Nations audio. And a special thanks to Pastor Chris Edmonds and Flint Whitlock, as well as Rick Trank, Judy Friedman, and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Biggest prize you could imagine. One more run. And everything that we have done will have been worth it. We can't do it alone, so where are your friends? Evil doesn't retire. So why should we? This has to be perfect, like clockwork. Join us. Hunters, starring Al Pacino. Executive produced by Jordan Peele. Stream now on Prime Video. This podcast was narrated by David Weil, creator and executive producer of Hunters on Prime Video. It was executive produced by Jordan Peele, Stephen Hine, Natalie Williams, and David Weil. Produced by Netta Farshbach, Keisha Center, and Sophia Williams. This episode was written by Josh Chesler. The voice of the Nazi soldier is Jan Close. Voiceover casting by Daryl Eisenberg and Ali Beans. Associate producers are Rebecca Drucker, and Hayda Holscher, post-production and co-produced by Trey Booty. The podcast featured the original theme and score from the second season of Hunters, written by Rupert Gregson Williams. Chutzpah, Hunters Presents True Stories of Resistance, is produced by Prime Video, Monkey Paw Productions, and Story Mill Media.